0: So let's see here. I think at this point, Mrs. Parham is taking kids fifth grade and under um, out the door to my left. The rest of you ought to be turning in your Bibles to the book of Luke as we continue our study in Luke. And we'll be in um, chapter six. We'll be looking at verses 12 through 17 this morning. So as the kids are are heading out, I would like to just uh, again remind you that our our fellowship meal is right after the church service today, and I hope you will be able to to join us. It's always a good time, and it is a wonderful blessing. So, well, as we uh, are moving along in our Look, in the Gospel of Luke, one of the things we've been kind of repeating over and over again, as we've looked at Luke, one of the, the kind of the two big areas that we've we focused on is the person of Jesus and the work of Jesus. And, and we've said on a regular basis that you can't really separate the two, that because of Jesus, because of who Jesus is, he does certain things. And because he does certain things, it demonstrates or gives credence or proves who he is, so when he because he is God, he forgives sins, and so when he forgives sins, it demonstrates that he is truly a divine individual, and so we have been looking at the person and work of jesus, and now we 're kind of entering into a, a another uh, big big theme, and it'll it'll also uh, pick up these ideas of who Jesus is and what Jesus does. But one of the things we're going to be looking at is Jesus is now going to be replicating Himself. He is going to be duplicating Himself. He is going to be calling people and authorizing them to do the things that He does. And so this is a a rather large, um, uh, a large... Topic. It'll cover quite a bit of ground all the way, at least until chapter 10. But Jesus is going to begin to mobilize his followers and he's going to mobilize them to do the work that he does. He's going to mobilize them for missions. And as we're going to discover, Jesus is recognizing. I mean, the bottom line is Jesus knows that he's not here forever. And that hostility is increasing and the cross lays in front of him. And if he does not equip other people to pick up his ministry, that it'll just simply die. And so he is going to authorize other people individuals to pick up his ministry and carry it on and uh, do wonderful things. And so in our text today, we're going to see him begin this this idea of mobilizing for missions. And so as Jesus is mobilizing for missions, we're going to see three major um, Uh, kind of break this down into three categories. The first one we'll see over here on the left, he's going to organize his disciples. And that's where we're going to be today. We're going to see him organizing his disciples. Um, Next week, we'll we'll look at, he's going to begin teaching his followers how to live. How do I live as a disciple? He's going to call people to live for him. And then he's going to teach them. Now, this is what I mean. This is what the life of a disciple looks like. And then, finally, when we get to chapters 9 and 10, he's actually going to call the people to go out and be missionaries and evangelists and do the work that I have called you to do. So that's kind of the big picture of where we hope to be going in the next um, few weeks or so. So, like I said, today we want to look at this idea of him organizing his disciples. And um, that is, he's actually going to call the twelve, the twelve Um, In our text, it's actually going to be calling the twelve apostles um, and the word apostle. When we speak of the twelve, the twelve apostles or twelve disciples are sometimes used interchangeably. We'll discuss that in a bit. But he's going to organize them and get them all kind of uh, together. But in order to call these twelve apostles. We're going to find he does something rather unusual to begin with, and that is he precedes his calling of these 12 by praying. And certainly there are some lessons for us there. So there will be a time of focus, uh, looking at focus, this focus on prayer. And uh, then finally, we will look today as Jesus replicates himself, he is going to authorize these individuals to Uh, make disciples. So that's just a a little bit of a preview. So he's going to organize his disciples. Our big themes today under organizing his disciples is that he's going, we're going to look at his focus of prayer and how he calls these individuals to be like him. So with that, let's go ahead and read our text. So will be in Luke chapter six, again, verses 12 through 17. There's actually uh, quite a bit here, and um, so let's look at it. It goes like this, verse 12. In these days, he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve whom he named apostles, Simon whom he named Peter and Andrew, his brother, and James and John and Philip and Bartholomew, and Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus and Simon, who was called the, the zealot and Judas, the son of James and Judas the Iscariot, who became a traitor. And we'll begin, we'll end there actually with verse 16. So you can see that our text begins with this statement, in these days. And I assume those of you who have been in this church for more than uh, a few weeks, you know what my question is going to be or what question we ought to ask ourselves when we read something like in these days, we're going to ask ourselves, what days In what days? What are we talking about? This is a time reference. And so we want to be cautious or we want to be mindful of what Luke is telling us in these days. Well, how are we going to figure out what in what days he's talking about? Well, we go back and we look at the context and we begin to see um, probably. I would say that in these days probably takes us all the way back to chapter five, verse seventeen, where Jesus begins to teach and to preach and to uh, speak of the kingdom of God, and one of the things we've note, we've noticed is this increasing hostility towards Jesus because he's. He's not playing the game the way all the religious leaders wanted him to play and there was a certain mold that they expected him to follow and he is not following the mold and he is doing and saying things like "Um, the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. First of all, it's a pretty big deal that he calls himself the Son of Man because that is a divine title that goes back to Daniel chapter 7. And, he's, and the Son of Man figure has all authority, all power, all dominion forever and ever. And Jesus is saying, yeah, that's me. He says, oh, and by the way, I have the authority to forgive sins. I have the authority to to." I have the authority over the the demonic. I have authority over hell. I have authority over sin. I have authority over nature. Uh, I cause the fish in the sea to go exactly where I want them to go. I I have the ability to position fishermen in the exact right place where they'll catch no fish. And then at my word, they will catch a net full of fish. I have authority over nature. I have authority over hell. I have authority over death. I have authority over sin. I have authority over all. I am that individual spoken of in Daniel chapter 7. And so the, um, you'd think people would be pretty excited about that. But Jesus, uh, there's this increasing hostility towards him. And we saw last week... Then this idea then that Jesus, I think it was last week or maybe the week before, that Jesus actually, for the first time in the book of Luke, begins to refer to his impending death. In other words, he said there's a time when the bridegroom won't be with you. And we discussed how that's referring, Jesus is referring to his crucifixion. So he's recognizing that because of the increasing hostility and because of the things that are going on, that his death is imminent and so in these days in these days of increasing hostility in these days of the fact that I'm moving towards Jerusalem I'm heading to the cross and in these days where this violent rage that we saw in six, chapter 6 verse 11 last week in these days of this violent rage towards his teaching and what he is doing in these days where he's actually gaining popularity with the people which in and of itself is dangerous and in these days where the religious leaders are wanting to kill him so on the one hand you got people who want to crown him king. And on the other hand, you got people who want to kill him. In these days, Jesus um, begins to prepare men and women to continue the work that he has begun. So in these days, he went out to the mountain to pray. I find his response to in these days rather instructive. In these days where there are those who desire my life, in these days where this these uh, um, these hostilities are directed, Jesus takes the the action of going and praying. I probably would run around and try to figure out all sorts of various ways, maybe try to appease those who hate me or do all sorts of various things. But Jesus finds, nope, this is the time to do the most powerful thing that I can do, and that is it's time to pray. And one of the things we should note about, the, about, the, uh, about Luke, who's the author of this book, is Luke portrays Jesus as a man of prayer. Um, In fact, Luke is very fascinated with prayer. Remember, Luke also wrote the book of Acts. And so in both Luke and Acts, prayer is a prominent theme in both of these books. And in this gospel, Luke portrays Jesus as a man of prayer. We see that he prays even when his popularity is increasing. And folks, don't forget, just because things are going well, that is not the time for us to stop praying. Oftentimes, when things go well, we uh, lose the urgency of prayer because, after all, everything's really good. Jesus, when things are going well, is diligent to be prayerful. We see Jesus praying prior to Peter's confession. That's significant. Prior to Peter saying, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God, confessing. Before mankind, who Jesus is, Jesus is praying. Oh, folks, as we go out and evangelize and we present the gospel to people and we begin to say, who do you say that Jesus is? Let us bathe those times um, in prayer. We see Jesus' prayer actually prompts his disciples to learn how to pray. Now, you've got to remember, his disciples are good Jewish boys. They've prayed before. They probably know all sorts of prayers. But they see Jesus praying, and they see something about His prayer, and they come to Him and say, Lord, teach us to pray. I want to pray like You pray. We also see Him praying, not unsurprisingly, as He faces the cross. In the garden... And even then in the garden, he's calling others to join him in prayer. And so we see in the Gospel of Luke that Jesus is portrayed as a man of prayer. This was important to Luke to, in, to instruct us that Jesus is a man of prayer. And let's look a, little bit about, look a little bit at Jesus and his prayer. It's noteworthy to consider the fact that Jesus found it necessary to depend on the Father. That Jesus, when He goes away to pray, this is his, his telling us that it is the Father on whom we depend. And Jesus referred to God as the Father. And He even taught us to pray that way. And, and we take it so so normal to pray to God as Father, but that was actually pretty revolutionary. Jesus was raised in a culture where people would have prayed to God as almighty or powerful or holy or a variety of different things, but Father? An intimate phrase like that? That was unusual. And Jesus prays to His Father. And Jesus actually taught us to pray to God as our Heavenly Father, the One who cares and nurtures and has our best interest in mind. And so He goes to the Father. It is an act of trust and it is an act of faith. When we pray, we are saying that, Lord, I trust You and I am appealing to You and I'm dependent upon You. But not only is it an act of of faith and dependence upon the Father, but it is an act of love. That is, he realizes that communion and fellowship with God is necessary. Jesus spent time alone with his Heavenly Father. I think we can all relate to the fact that in order for us to really have healthy relationships with one another, quality alone time is so important. So whether it's with your spouse it's important that we get away with one another. Just us. Perhaps, I know I've talked to, to some of you who have a, more than one child. And you, you'll tell me that there's oftentimes that I, maybe like once a month, I'll take one of the children and we just go and do something special with that. I just spend time with that one child that day. Not that, and then later on I go to the other child and, and we just spend quality time. It's just me and that child alone. Because quality time, getting to know one another, is, uh, it is imperative that we spend alone time with one another. And so Jesus gets alone with his Heavenly Father. And the reason I think that he goes to the mountain to pray is because there are no distractions. Jesus was constantly being called upon. Jesus, there's somebody we've got to need. Jesus, we've got this. Jesus is being pulled in all of these directions. And so he goes to the mountain to pray. There he can be alone with his Heavenly Father. We read that Jesus often went to a quiet place. And I think it's important then for us to remember that it is that we need to find that quiet place to, for, to give time to prayer. I know I, I talk to, to many people and they say, oh, well, I, I pray when I'm driving between pine and or pine and, paste, and or I pray when I'm doing the dishes and or I pray when I'm doing these things. That's good. Keep that up. That helps us with that verse that says, pray without ceasing. But don't do that to the neglect of going into your closet or that private place and getting alone with God. Sometimes I fear we may substitute the pray without ceasing. And we do that, but we neglect that time where there are no distractions, there are no cell phones, there are no things beeping and going off. And it may not be, obvious Jesus prayed all night. So you may not be able to pray all night alone because you'll probably have Many of you parents will have some little footsteps coming to the door and knocking on the door saying, Mommy, Daddy, I need you. But there is, I would work on trying to find some alone time to get together with your Heavenly Father. I think probably one of the most well-known and most beloved examples is uh, Susanna Wesley, the mother of a number of children, but most notably John and Charles Wesley, and the rule in the house was when you see mom with her apron over her head, not to disturb her for she is praying. Now, I, we're all, she just, she didn't know how to get away. She had, I think, ten kids, nine or ten kids, all right? And she had, she had a brutally hard life, all right? Brutally hard life. I think she had a total of 19 children, but only nine or ten survived. They often were without food. Um, they were often uh, without housing. Her husband was not a good manager of money. And she had a tough life. And she committed herself to pray for two hours a day. And she instructed her, her children, all. I'll give her the benefit of the doubt, nine of them. When you see mom with her apron over her head, that's her alone time. When you see mom with her apron over her head, you do not disturb her. So she found a way. I'm not saying, oh, you've got to spend two hours in prayer every day or that you've got to spend all night in prayer, but I am encouraging and exhorting us to find some time where we can actually get away. Maybe it's five minutes, it may not be a lot. And it may be challenging. There are various seasons in life where it's certainly more challenging than others. But I'd also encourage you, if it is challenging, seek the Lord. Lord, how do I make this work? I believe wholeheartedly that the God who made the universe can find a way for the one who desires to get alone with Him and say, Lord, I just want to spend a few good moments of quality time with You. I want to be like Jesus. Don't we say that? I just want to be like Jesus. Well, this is what Jesus did. Got alone with his heavenly Father. He withdrew to a quiet place. And whether that quiet place is an apron over your head or is actually out in the mountains somewhere, it is communicated to us to find a place, a way to get alone with our heavenly Father and admit our dependence and admit our need to Him. And so, this idea of prayer, I think prayer is one of those really interesting subjects because in some ways it's somewhat ironic because on the one hand, prayer is the most powerful thing you can engage in. It is perhaps the most powerful act a human can undertake. It is by means of prayer that the Bible says that we actually we pull down strongholds and we re, we can wrestle against spiritual forces. That's an amazing thing. That we can overcome forces of wickedness. That through prayer we are mighty I think prayer also demonstrates strength in the fact that it, it requires that you stand alone at times. Because society, this world, culture might appreciate prayer. Oh, that's nice that you're praying. And then when you're done, um, let's get to the real work. There's real things that need to be done. And oftentimes, one must be incredibly strong to say, it's time to pray. Yes, there are a thousand things to do. Practical needs need to be met. But for now, I'm going to pray. I think if I can paraphrase badly, I believe it was Martin Luther who says, I have so much to do today. I'll spend the first three hours in prayer. And so it is, on the one hand, one of the most powerful things we can do. And on the other hand, it is a demonstration of weakness. It admits needs. It's, it is an admission that I cannot do it on my own. I need somebody else to do this task for me. I can't do it. I don't know the answer to the problem. Perhaps you've even sought counselors and advice and all sorts of um, wisdom from experts. Experts. Certainly, Scripture would applaud the idea of finding good counselors. But prayer is saying, I don't know what to do. I have no idea. And I'm sure all of us can give a testimony at some point where we were like, I I don't know what to do. I've got no answer to this, this situation. So I'll pray. And I will admit my need to God. And I will say, Heavenly Father, I don't know what to do, but you're God of the universe. And so I am utterly and completely and totally dependent upon you. Prayer is, in fact, the most powerful thing you can do. And prayer is, in fact, an admission of utter weakness and complete dependency. And so we see Jesus as a man of prayer. And so as this time In this time of increasing crisis, Jesus finds solitude with God. This particular time, it required that he pray all night to receive clarity regarding God's will. I don't know exactly what Jesus prayed for, but I can pretty much guarantee you one of the things he prayed for is he's about to choose 12 individuals who will be a select group of people whom he will pour his life into. And it is these 12 minus 1. Well, these 12 plus Paul. Who will literally turn the world upside down. And so, in these days he went out to the mountain to pray. And all night he continued in prayer. And when the day came, he called his disciples and chose from them 12 whom he named apostles. There's The thing. So now we begin to see probably the primary focus of Jesus' prayer, and that is that he would call twelve to be his sent ones who would train others and would change the world. First thing we should note is that when the day came, he called his disciples. Noted that, note that, and he chose from them twelve. So there seems to be this large group of disciples. I don't know how many, a large group of disciples. And out of that large group of disciples, he selected 12. And he named them apostles. Now, let's pause here for a moment and just make sure that we define our terms um, here. For a disciple is simply a learner, a student. I think one of the, uh, the a good term for us today is an apprentice. One who learns from another. So a disciple is just basically a student. In this case, a student of Christ. Um, rabbis had disciples and they had people, They, had they disciples would follow them around and they would walk after them and follow after them and learn of them and learn their teachings, learn their sayings, learn how they would act in certain situations. Those were disciples. And then out of this large group of disciples, he calls twelve and Luke tells us that he calls them apostles. Now, apostle is a different term. It has to do with one who is sent. It literally means a sent one. And apostle is not a unique word to the Christian faith. It was used in in Greek culture all over the place. It would be anybody who went with the authority of somebody else. So a king might send an apostle to conduct king's business. it's important for us to note that the apostle, the sent one, had all of the authority to speak for the king and to conduct the king's business. And if one mistreated the king's apostle, it, it was as though one mistreated the king himself. So he went with that authority. He went commissioned by this particular king and he went as the king himself and that to reject, mock, mistreat or harm the sent one was to mistreat, harm or despise the king himself. On the flip side, to treat the sent one kindly and graciously and hospitably was as treating the king hospitably and kindly and graciously because He carried all of the authority of the King. So it's not a unique word to the Bible, but you can see why the Christian church picked it up. You can see why Jesus uses this term. You are my sent ones. There's a whole group of disciples out here, but out of this group of disciples, I am going to pick twelve and they will be my sent ones and they will go with my authority. And so, we might be able to say, I think I put it in your note, that all apostles are disciples, but all, not, not all disciples are apostles. Does that make sense? So, let's look at this, this idea of apostle as it's used in the New Testament because it, is, um, it can be somewhat mystifying, it's a little bit confusing, I guess the only reason it's confusing is because it's a big subject. I know sometimes we reduce it down. Well, the apostle is just the, the the twelve, and it's those who saw Christ risen from from the dead and saw his resurrection or those who were with him at his baptism through his resurrection or saw his ascension and it's just those 12 but the bible uses this word apostle in a lot of different ways in fact this word apostle is used like 80 different times in the bible so let's look very briefly very very briefly you can you can study this on your own if you desire or have time. But let's look very briefly at how this idea of apostle is used. You might be interested to note that um, this word apostle is used of Jesus. Jesus is an apostle, believe it or not. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1. I don't know if I put that... I don't know if your notes say 310. If it says Hebrews 310, um, that's not right. It's 31 and it says this, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. So Jesus was the sent one. He is the apostle. He is the model for us. It is also used of those who were sent by churches. Um, and you can read... I think I put those... Oh, there's my, my Hebrews three one. Here's this... One in um, 2 Corinthians 8.23, As for Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker among you. As for our brethren, they are messengers, apostolos. They are apostles of the churches, a glory to Christ. So it is used of those, we also see it in the Philippians 2.25, this idea of those who were sent, actually sent by the churches. He is my partner and fellow worker among you. As for our brethren, they are messengers or apostles of the churches. So the church would send people out. And then probably the the term that we are most familiar with is that it is used of the twelve, including Paul, who had the authority and dignity of the early church. I'm going to look, for our purpose today, we are going to look primarily at the first one, Jesus is an apostle, and the third usage, that is, of the twelve. So The first thing we should note is that Jesus is a sent one. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1, that Jesus is an apostle. Now, you'll recall what I stated, that to receive a sent one was to receive the one who sent him. And to reject the sent one or apostle is to reject the one who sent him. And this, of course, we see in, in Mark chapter 3, 14. We actually see it in a couple of places. Mark chapter 3, verse 14, where Jesus says this. Wrong verse. Never mind. I'm sorry, Luke 10.16. There we are. We'll get to that that Mark passage. Luke 10.16. Of course, this page is going to stick together. Jesus says this, The one who hears you hears me, and the one who rejects you rejects me. And the one who rejects me, rejects him who sent me. Do you get that? He's, he's talking to his people who he sent out on a mission um, and to preach the gospel. And this is what he says. The one who hears you, hears me. I'm the one sending you. You're my apostle. The one who hears you, it's the same as if they're hearing me. And the one who rejects you, rejects me. But then he goes another step further, and the one who rejects me rejects the one who sent me. That is God the Father. So you cannot say, well, I believe in God, but I don't know about the whole Jesus thing. I think maybe he's just, he's okay. You reject Jesus, you reject the Father. This is what Jesus says. By the way, you reject the disciple of Jesus, you reject Jesus. And by rejecting Jesus, you reject God the Father who sent Jesus as the apostle. So it's used of Jesus um, as the sent one. So first of all, we see that Jesus is an apostle. And then we want to look at the, the 12 that Jesus commissioned in this particular passage of text. And I'd like to just look at the role that these 12 individuals had. There are probably more, but I will limit it to these these five that I've listed in your notes, but there were a number of different roles that these apostles, sometimes called disciples, and oftentimes in scripture, When we're talking about the twelve, we're either it uses disciple and apostle interchangeably. So just that's just the way it is. So. Sometimes when it refers to the twelve, it refers to the twelve disciples, and sometimes it refers to the twelve apostles, and those two terms can be used interchangeably. But in Luke, he makes sure that we understand these are twelve apostles, twelve sent ones, and their first role that we see of them is in Mark chapter 3, 14. That's the verse I would mentioned earlier, and that role was to be with Jesus. The first thing that this group of twelve was called to do was to be with Jesus. After all, these were going to be the ones who witnessed of Christ. He says this, And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach. So these two things, number one, they were to be with Jesus. They were going to be talking, and as they were sent out to preach, and especially after the resurrection, or especially after the ascension, they were going to go out and share the gospel and talk about the life and death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. And they can go out as firsthand witnesses. But the first thing, also, we're going to learn that they taught what Jesus taught. So they had to be in his school. They actually heard the professor speaking. And as Jesus taught them, then they could go out and begin to teach. But they had to be with him. They had to learn about him. They had to know him. They had to, to, to see him in his, in his glory and see him every single day. Not only in his glory, but in his humility. They had to see him wash the feet, even of Judas. They had to see that. They had to be with him there. And so the apostles were to witness of Christ. But all of that witness came from an intimate knowledge of being with him. The second role of these twelve, we get hinted at in the verse I just read, where it says that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach. The apostles become the source of doctrine. Doctrine. They become the source of our biblical teaching. Acts chapter 2 verse 42 tells us that the early church gave themselves to the apostles' teaching. And they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And so the early church gave themselves to the apostles' teaching teaching these were divinely inspired men who spoke the authoritative word of god you wonder where did guys like peter get his information so you read first and second peter Where did he get that information? Where did Matthew get his gospel? Where did John get his epistles? How does he know to say these things? Well, he received them from they received them from Christ. They are the source of our doctrine. And they are divinely inspired to speak the authoritative word of God. I think i got a pastor up there. John 14, 26. Did I, did I get that one? Maybe? I know it's in the notes. I don't know if it's on our... There it is. Look at that. Look at what Jesus says to the twelve. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. And so these become the ones who teach the Word of God. And our very so our doctrine, our understanding is founded upon the apostles. Sometimes I hear people, maybe inadvertently, I don't think they mean it on on purpose. But almost saying that the red letters in the Bible are more authoritative than the black letters in the Bible, and I just want to illuminate you that the red letters and the black li- letters are both divinely inspired by the same Holy Spirit, and they are just the black letters are just as authoritative as the red letters. There is no difference between them because the same Holy Spirit inspired them all, and the same holy Spirit told the disciples which red letters to put in there. I mean, Jesus said a whole bunch more stuff than the red letters we have in the Bible. And it was the Holy Spirit who said, I want those red letters in there. And then a guy like Matthew or John writes those red letters. By the way, that John 14, 26, those are red letters. But the Holy Spirit told John, put those red letters in there. You know what I mean by red letters, right? In Bibles, red letters are those that are attributed to Jesus Christ. But when Moses wrote, he wrote under divine inspiration. And when he said, when he gave us the Decalogue or the Ten Commandments, they were divinely inspired by the Holy Spirit. He was one of those men moved along by the Holy Spirit and gave us God's Word. So they become the source of our doctrine. They are the ones who have informed us what the truth of Jesus Christ is. This is important. As we get into a little little bit later, I'm just going to touch on the subject. Because there are no more apostles in the sense of the twelve, there is no more new doctrine. There is no more new truth. These were individuals who could speak, thus saith the Lord. In one sense, they are parallel to an Old Testament prophet who would speak, thus saith the Lord. And the apostles could speak, thus saith the Lord. This is an authoritative statement that comes from God himself. And I can state this with all authority and power of heaven. And the one who sent me I am speaking for the one who sent me. So, they were to be with Jesus and to learn of Him, they become the source of our doctrine or our teaching. Doctrine is just one of those fancy words that carries some baggage, but it just means teaching. So don't be fearful when we talk about doctrine. Celebrate. We love doctrine. I got one amen out of that. But we love doctrine. People t- <laughs> I'll repeat myself. People tell me doctrine divides, and I say, absolutely. That's exactly what it's supposed to do. It's supposed to divide truth from error. So we love doctrine because it does divide. It tells us right from wrong, truth from error, heresy from orthodoxy, and all the other things. So we love teaching doctrine. And we love teaching doctrine. Anyways, enough of that. So let's move along. Another thing that the, another role of the twelve was that they were given authority for miraculous power. And we see this in second Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12, where that they would do the signs of an apostle, that signs and wonders were one of the things that confirmed that these guys were actually who they said they were. 2 Corinthians twelve twelve. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience with signs and wonders and mighty works. And so they were given the ability to do signs and wonders. It authorized or gave validity to their message. And we see that this is a role of signs and wonders throughout Scripture. Signs and wonders weren't just done for the sake of A sideshow trick and to amaze people while it probably often amazed people, they gave credence to the messenger. And so we see when Moses leads the people, we see an explosion of miracles during the time of Moses. Why? Because he's saying that I'm God's representative and I'm going to tell you what God has said. And, And God has made a covenant and this is what you're supposed to do. Well, prove it. Okay. How about this? Red Sea, open up. Yeah, that's a pretty big deal. And you walk across on the dry land, and then you're pursuing, the pursuing army comes, and they get bogged down in the mud. Remember, you just walked across dry land. Now it's mud for them, and they get covered up by the sea. That's a pretty big deal. And so, well, maybe we should listen to this guy. Not that they did, but maybe... For a brief moment, we should listen to what this guy has to say. We should also see an explosion of miracles during the time of the prophets Elijah and Elisha. Because, again, they come along, the word of God has been lost, people have been rebelling, and they begin to speak forth the word of God. And when kings, wicked kings and rulers say, who are you? This is who we are. I'm declaring a drought. And for the next three years, there's going to be a drought. And they begin to verify their words by what they do. The next place we see an explosion of miracles is during the ministry of Jesus Christ and his apostles because they came bringing a new covenant. And people might say, what is this new teaching? Who authorized you to do this? And they would say, in the name of Jesus, I tell you, rise up and walk. And they begin to do the works of Jesus. And so they were authorized to do miraculous things. Just so you know, I continue to believe that God continues to do miraculous things. I don't believe, however, that there are apostles in the sense of that we are talking about in the sense of the twelve. But God continues to do miraculous things every time. Otherwise, we wouldn't even pray, would we? When we pray, we're praying usually for a miracle. Lord, heal this person. Lord, bring about salvation. Lord, do this, do that. And usually what we're asking is the impossible. And then God does it. And we say, praise be to God. God just did an amazing thing. He just did a miracle in our midst. There was no hope. There was no way. And I cried out to God and God did it. Every time somebody comes to... To faith in Christ, it is a miracle. Because, here's the thing, dead people don't come to life. They don't. And people who are separated from God and dead by reason of their trespasses and sins do not come to life. They just don't. You know it, I know it. And then the gospel somehow penetrates that death. Death. And God, by His Spirit, regenerates new life and the person becomes alive again and in a relationship with God Almighty. That is an incredible miracle. So, they were given the authority to do miraculous things. And ultimately, they were the very foundation of the church. Our church is built on the foundation of... Of the apostles and Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. And so again, in the sense of the twelve, there is no more church foundation. There are no apostles continuing to build the foundation of the church. They just don't exist in that sense. It's done. And ultimately, we should realize then that the authority of these apostles is a derived authority. That is, the authority comes from Jesus Himself. And as we quoted earlier, this is what Jesus said, whoever receives you receives me and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. We see that also in Mark chapter 6, verse 7 and 2 Peter 3, 2, that their authority comes from Jesus, not a self-attained authority. So let me give you a brief summary then. In the sense considered above, there are no longer any apostles in the sense of the twelve. That role is done. You'll notice that the apostles did not... um, Train more apostles. After John, it's not like John trained another apostle. And Paul didn't say, appoint apostles in churches. What did he say? Appoint elders. And so, in that sense, because nobody continues to speak the word of God, there is no there is no more new revelation. The doctrine has been set. It has been established. The church's foundation has been laid, and Jesus is the chief cornerstone. We continue to build on that. What do we build? We build the teaching that the apostles have given to us. And so none of us have been directly taught by Christ. None of us have witnessed his resurrection. The apostles did not commission more apostles, but rather they appointed elders to lead the church. So when John the apostle died, the apostles, in the sense of the twelve, died along with him. It was a unique role for a unique time, and it is over and done with. So, in the broader sense of apostleship, um, I know I brought up, there are other uses of the word apostle, being sent ones, perhaps, some people have suggested, perhaps in these days, maybe a missionary could be considered, you know, those who are commissioned by a church. Remember, we read that passage of those who are commissioned by a church to go out and proclaim the gospel. Perhaps a missionary might be considered um, or a church planter in that very broad sense of apostleship, one who is sent by a church to, um, a sent one, but they are sent by a, a, a church upon which um, the teaching of the original apostles is foundational. So perhaps in that sense, we have apostles today, but there are no apostles in the sense of the twelve and uh, so, like I said, a really, really big subject, and we skimmed over it, and I highlighted just a few things. It is a very involved um, subject, but this is what the apostles, this is what Jesus did. He, there were a whole bunch of disciples, and out of that whole bunch of disciples, he picked 12, and he said, this is... This is the thing you guys are going to go and you are going to bear my authority and I'm going and you are going to teach my truth and you are going to establish my church and you are going to confirm it by signs and wonders. And that is going to be your job. So let's look a little bit at the method that Jesus used, because I think this hits home for us. Jesus entrusted the kingdom to these individuals. That's pretty interesting, don't you think? Look at those individuals. That's the kingdom of God is, can I say, dependent upon the choice that Jesus makes of these 12. No wonder he prayed all night. (laughs) Now, you might look at those 12 and say, really, you prayed all night and that's what you come up with? That's either the the most foolish thing I've ever seen or it is so God. Because if the kingdom of God is established through those guys, it's got to be God. And so this is what Jesus did. He trained 12 individuals. But he didn't train 12 individuals just for the sake of training them. He trained 12 individuals so that they might train more Individuals, And let's bring up this verse uh, of 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2. It says, These things which you have heard from me in the presence of many... So Paul is writing this. These things, and he's writing to Titus. These things which you've heard from me in the presence of many and witnesses, and trust these, what these things that you've heard from me, and trust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others, suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. So what is Paul the apostle who has been commissioned by Jesus Christ to do. He is now training Titus. I'm sorry, Timothy. Sorry. He is now training Timothy. But Timothy wasn't supposed to just say, well, thanks. Now I got it all. We're good to go. No, Timothy. Now you entrust what I taught you to faithful people. And I'm sure Timothy then taught those people to teach more faithful people. And the idea here is that you will continue to entrust the words of Christ to faithful individuals who will continue to um, share the gospel. So you, you look around the world. How do we reach a world of six billion people? It is a daunting task. I can't reach six billion people. Even in the day, this day of great technology, where we can go around the world without having to leave our, our computer. If I had my cell phone with me, I, well, I got this thing right here. I could probably reach the uttermost parts of the world. How do I reach six billion people? How does this re- church reach six billion people? Well, here's what we do. It's multiplication. And it's exponential. So one person reaches another person who reaches another, and next thing you know, exponentially, things grow and grow. I think I heard the story, and I may get this a little bit wrong. But it was like, what would you rather have? You're given a job. And you're going to work the job for 30 days. And in 30 days, you can receive $50,000. Or you can select this as your salary, a penny the first day. And the next day it doubles, and the next day it doubles, and the next day it doubles. And it keeps on going, and it doubles for 30 days. Which one do you choose? Well, you take the second one, the penny. Because something like at the end of the month, you've got like $437,000, not $50,000. You can check my math. Um, I'm sure it's not exact. Yvonne's not here, so we're, we're good to go. But it's, it's a lot more. That's the idea. So you think about it. If each of us will lead one person to the Lord this year, not just lead that person to the Lord. At this church, I'm not going to be satisfied with leading a person to the Lord. Because we need to train that person. And trust these things. All right? If you simply get somebody to come to know Jesus Christ, if through your, your proclamation of his word, their heart is impacted and they bow the knee and come to Christ, and that's all we've done. We have failed. Because that's not what Jesus told us to do. He said, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And you know that, I believe, means that's regeneration there. Not because baptism regenerates you, but because that was the act of demonstrating that the regeneration had occurred. And teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. That's the next step. We need to teach them all that Christ has commanded. So, our... I will challenge us. The idea here is to lead one person to the Lord. That may mean you've got to throw out a whole lot of seed for one to take root. And then, when you, that person is led to the Lord, it is now, that is your child. I want you to lead that person in growing, in maturity. And at the church here, you say, well, I don't know what to do about that. I don't know how to do that. Well, you don't need to reinvent the wheel. There's all sorts of good material out there. And when you come and you tell me, man, you know what? My neighbor came to know Christ. I was having dinner with him the other day and they accepted Christ. Now what do I do? Right. We will make sure that you have all kinds of, of material and all sorts of things to begin to help that person to grow. And then your next excuse will be, "What well, I'm not qualified. Well, all I have to have you to do is look at the 12 that Jesus picked. All right? There are no theologians and there are no scholars there you got a lot of really messed up folks, very imperfect. Paul would have been the only scholar. So one out of 12. One of the ones Jesus picked was a traitor. And so if God privileges you with the ability to walk with somebody into the kingdom, he will qualify you and enable you to lead them. And we can help you. You're not going to have to do it on your own. Uh, we, there are plenty of people here who will love to come alongside and help you. But it becomes your responsibility. That's your child. Raise them up. Train them up. So what are we going to do? How are we going to fulfill this mandate? How are we going to reach six billion people? Well, you know, we, we changed our mission statement this year. That is being disciples who make disciples. It comes from these types of verses. It comes from the model that Jesus left. I'm going to go away, Jesus says. And when I go away, who's going to take up the ministry? It's going to die. Folks, the bottom line is, is one of these days, you and I will not be here. (coughs) Who's going to take our place? It is imperative that we share the gospel with as many people as we possibly can, and if each one of us will lead somebody to the Lord and train that person, we will turn this community upside down. I don't know if we can turn the world upside down, but folks, maybe we can turn the household next door upside down. And from there, the world gets actually turned right side up. And so Jesus chose common people And most of these people that Jesus chose, we don't know much about. I mean, we know a lot about Peter and James and John. Beyond that, not much. They're nobodies, if you will. We don't hear about them. They didn't get invited to the conferences and they're not writing books. And there are no great seminars that they're leading. But these were the ones that Jesus uh, said, I'm going to pour my life into you. And you will be my apostle. And through you, folks, we can probably trace our spiritual lineage back to one of those 11, 12, including Paul. If there were a spiritual ancestry.com you could probably find your, the beginning of your life somewhere. And and it may have been one of these known, it may have been Bartholomew. What happened to Bartholomew? I don't know. All kinds of stories. I don't know. But he was a man of God who was commissioned by Jesus to proclaim the gospel. And you and I are here because of a guy like Bartholomew. So, let us be part of that branch so somewhere down the line somebody will look at their spiritualancestry.com and you and I will be in that line. So Jesus chose common people. I'll I'll conclude with this and then we'll be able to go eat. Well, actually, then we'll be able to sing a song and then we'll bless one another and then we'll go and have lunch. But my conclusion will be this. Jesus said this, as the father sent me, so I send you. We need to take that to heart. We need to take that seriously. His method was to duplicate himself. And prior to doing it, he began in prayer. Prayer grounded it. If you think we can do this outside of the Father's strength and assistance and guidance, we are sorely mistaken. It will not happen in our own strength, but great and powerful things will happen when we go to our Heavenly Father in prayer and say, show me the ones. There's a whole bunch of disciples out there. Show me the ones I pour my life into. As the Father sent me, so I send you. His method was to duplicate Himself. I fear that we have lost this idea of duplicating and replicating ourselves. See, He sends us. And here is either the glorious or frightening thing. There is no plan B. You and I, believe it or not, are the plan. The twelve were the plan. And through the twelve come you and me. We're the plan. You know, oh no, yeah. God has no plan B. This tells us one of two things. Well, I'll just tell you, it only tells us one thing. That God, in His sovereign wisdom, says this is the best plan. That is, you and me are His best plan. What an amazing thought. That God, in His wisdom, chose folks like you and me, and He said, yeah, that's that's the best plan. That's the one that's going to work. So, we are to be about our master's business. The fields are wide to harvest. The laborers are few. Let it not be said of this church that the laborers are few. We may be few in number, but let it be said of us that everybody is laboring in the church on Randall Place. Let's stand and let's pray. What a joy it is, Lord God, that you have given us the privilege of being called by you to make disciples. There is no greater joy in this world than being given the privilege of seeing somebody come to know you, of being there when the dead are raised. When one who is dead because of their re- by reason of their trespasses and sins is made alive, there is no greater joy than being witness to that event firsthand. I pray, Father God, that you would enable me to model this, Lord God, for I fail so spectacularly in this area. So I pray, Father God, that I would be able to model it and do it. I pray, gracious Lord, that we would be serious about this, that wherever we live, work, and play, that we would be about making disciples who make disciples. The time is short. Convict us, Lord God, and let us go through the power of the Holy Spirit, prayerful, equipped for battle, and ready to do the work that you've called us to do. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.